In this episode, we answer questions about engineering that we found on a quaint little site you might have heard of called Reddit. Yep, that's right. We're answering engineering questions from Reddit in this episode. And so Adam covers whether it makes any difference for new engineers to have a job with a Fortune 500 company. Carmen tries to explain why two resistors do not a voltage regulator make. Brian attempts to start a fight over programming languages. And Jeff offers a theory about why middle-aged folks tell the same old jokes over and over and over. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 64, Reddit Questions, September 18th, 2014. So Carmen, where do you go to get your engineering questions answered? Uh, well, I'm a savant, so I don't need any answered. So next question. <laughs> <laughs> Can you answer my engineering questions then? Because I'm I'm frequently stumped. Sure, yeah. You guys can just interview me tonight. <laughs> oh, uh, excellent. Yeah. No, no, I'm not that cocky. Um, I, I know better than that now. I make too many dumb mistakes to legitimately believe that one. Um, it kind of depends on what sort of question I have that needs answering. Um, if it's just a generic, uh, oh, what was the equation to model, you know, to a first or second order that lost through a MOSFET or inductor or whatever, I'll pull up an app note or go to one of my textbooks I have sitting in my shelf at work. Um, if it's a part-related question, you know, I'm generally just up the hall from a designer or an apps guy who helped implement that feature or who's been around for 20 years, so they're always a pretty good resource to tap. Right. Um, and then if it's something a little bit outside my normal field of power electronics, I'll... Uh, Maybe throw the question to Twitter, and I've had some good luck there. Just asking, you know, does anyone have a reference for X, Y, Z, or, you know, do a quick sanity check on an assumption or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after that, I don't really know where I'd go. <laughs> text, text a buddy yeah. from college, and I get told I'm an idiot for right. asking that question. But yeah. then it brings back memories of homework sessions, so I don't mind. Right. Well, and sometimes you just wander down the hallway and gripe to somebody down the hallway just because you both, you know, neither one of you know the answer, but it feels good just to gripe about how impossible it is to find the answer. Oh, yeah. And then you, know, you always get a treat when you, you go gripe about it and, you know, you're actually working through the problem as you're complaining and you're like, oh, right. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that happens. I, I seem to work well that way. I need someone to go bounce off stupid ideas or to vent to and then something usually clicks. Right. So many of my good ideas yeah. come as I touch the handle of the lab and I go to open it and go, oh, I forgot to do this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it's sometimes hard to find a uh, an answer to an engineering problem. Oh, yeah. It's, and once you get away from like the core courses everybody would have to take in your field or as a general engineer, I mean, you really need someone in that field to answer the question. And that's easier said than done. Yeah, and, and a lot of the problems that we engineers try to solve are difficult because they haven't been solved before. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, 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 if somebody had done it before and documented it so that it was easy to find, anybody could do it, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah, with a good enough manual, you can get anything done. Right. Well, we had uh, occasionally asked uh, our 
listening audience whether they had any questions about engineering, and we've got relatively f- few responses. <laughs> and we just do such a good job of answering them all that the well, we, well that I don't know I don't know whether we do such a good job of answering questions or just everybody's so busy with their jobs they don't have time to stop and ask us or they think that there's really zero chance that we would have an answer that'd be useful to them. Could be any of those. Uh, I'd rather not admit we're we're dummies. <laughs> <laughs> That we just we just feel intimidating, you know, with all our knowledge. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So we decided that we would have a a Q and A episode. All right. But since we have uh, no real questions from our listeners, that it's not like they the questions were piling up in the comments section. Uh, we decided we would go to where there seemed to be a constant source, a constant stream of engineering questions, and that would be what Carmen. I'm uh, imagining a word that begins with an R. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm seeing the same word. I'm, th- I'm, I'm seeing it in my head. I feel like, can I, I feel can like I I've read it before on you? the internet, but I'm not sure. You, you might have. Yes. You might have. Stay, stay with that thought. Mm, I feel like if we were a sitcom, this would be the episode everyone know we ran out of our budget. <laughs> <laughs> would this be the jumping the shark episode? Uh, I wouldn't go with the jumping the shark episode, but it'd be it'd be the bottle episode if we want to link to TV tropes. Where okay. you know, they have all the characters in one room for <laughs> a whole episode or whatever. Right. Um, right. Yeah. No, we're going to be fielding some choice questions from Reddit. Yeah, from no no other place than Reddit. Yes. Where, uh, the, uh, where I do not go I, to get any questions I have answered. <laughs> no offense to the Reddit it, community. Please don't downvote it, me. It, it's probably not the place <laughs> to go for technical uh, solutions, but it seems to be be a constant stream of questions i'm uh i'm amazed at how many times i go over there and take a quick look and it's what is you know first of all it's pick a career for me what what engineering job should i have yeah as though somebody else could tell you what what (laughs) engineering field you should be in. yeah some stranger on the internet or what's the perfect school that i should go to or what's the perfect certification i could have as though mm-hmm. going to a particular school or having a particular certification will solve yeah. all one's the, the problems be all end all starter project that will make you <laughs> you know jump off the page when someone looks at your resume right um yeah but no there's a lot of good discussion that comes up you know every now and again on the threads yeah so there is uh you know Sometimes some some surprisingly deep and thoughtful and insightful comments. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why I keep going back. Every once in a while, I run across something and go, hmm, that is a very good thought. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what do you say? We, uh, we, we dive in and try a couple of questions and see what happens. Let's do it. Okay. Well, I will, uh, I will start. I came across a question here. Where somebody was asking who has a more hands-on engineering job, and the and the questioner was saying, "Hey, uh, he wasn't a big fan of writing, and he, you know, he basically he wanted to do hands-on." And the question was, "Can you be an engineer and be hands-on?" And the answer is, at least my opinion is that anything's possible. Oh, yeah. Sure, you may f- you may find that job, uh, but the question is. How do you want to be spending your time? Um, if you have a passion for machining parts, that's great. If you are really good at doing design work or you're doing really great at doing analysis, is that the best use of your time? Well, it depends entirely on what you enjoy. If you love machining parts, then 
find a job machining parts. Uh, yeah, you can make good money as head of a machine shop where you don't do too much design, if at any, and just run that run that lab. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but uh, for the most part, engineering is considered um, sort of working at a sort of a, an level of abstraction above the actual physical machining or you know making things or soldering parts. It's not that. An electrical engineer doesn't have to solder parts from time to time, but at most companies, you know, especially larger institutions, the engineer is going to be in charge of doing the design work or overseeing the, you know, the bill of material the or validation work or the ballot. Yeah. And they're going to hire someone who's less expensive. I mean, there's a reason engineers get a pretty nice salary in comparison to uh, other people coming out of school. Um, they're going to hire someone who doesn't have to have you know, who hasn't passed all that calculus and all the, you know, you know, finished the Fourier transforms and done all the math uh, to prove that they, you know, that they can uh, jump that hurdle. And so while it's possible to be hands-on engineer, I'd say unless you're starting your own business or a consulting firm where you can do, you can pick the jobs you want, the likelihood is in industry, most engineering positions are not going to be, you know, highly hands-on. I would say there are some caveats, and maybe my experience is a little bit different as an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've noticed two trends that make have made engineering actually more hands-on. Really? First, rapid prototyping and uh, a whole host of automated manufacturing systems. So everything from CNC to 3D printing you know, board manufacturing, you know, is, is effectively a rapid prototyping system at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I've seen is, uh, and again, this may be sample size of one, you know, but ac- across a couple institutions I've seen uh, whenever a requisition is available, there's almost, in engineering companies this is, there's almost a bias towards making the requisition an engineering job even if it should probably be a technician or a tech writer or, you know, anything else, mm-hmm. because they feel that, hey, if I can, you know, an engineer not only can do the work of a tech writer or a technician, et cetera, but they can also be an engineer. So it's more multi-purpose. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter that I'm paying more. And so I've seen engineers do quite a bit of hands-on work, um, but that's probably not, I mean, if we're talking strictly mechanical, it's probably not the kind of stuff that they'd be interested in. And so is this hands-on work something that happens only at the beginning of a career, you know, for the first year or two, as they're sort of sorting out their skills and, and the employer is evaluating uh, how well they can do the job? Or, or have you seen that going on for a, a pretty good portion of one's career? Um, my career, yes. I have seen... Uh, work that has traditionally been done by technicians um, or non-degreed engineers done by, you know, degreed engineers with, you know, master's degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways it's better. I, I know there are some facilities that will never let an engineer touch a soldering iron. Right. Um, I haven't worked at those. So if, if you work at those <laughs> or you are going to work at those, you know, don't use this as a reference. But, uh, you know... I've hand assembled quite a few boards, you know, whenever it comes to putting test leads on a device or running or instrumenting up my own tests uh, for design, I pretty much always do it myself, you know, 
So, so that's one snapshot. I know you're right 100%. If you want to sit on a bridge port and hog out a precision piece of mechanical mastery, you're probably not going to be doing much mechanical engineering. Right. Well, and I, I enjoyed your com- your comment about the rapid prototyping, although it seems to me that uh, the rapid prototyping sort of takes one away from the hands-on, mm-hmm. right? You know, because you don't turn the cranks on a bridge port anymore. You program a CNC machine. Or, or you, you know, you send out a part for rap- rapid, rapid prototyping, so you've designed it, you know, in a solid modeler, and you send it out. Uh, again, it's, yes, you're involved. You, you get to touch the physical device when it comes back, but again, you're not making it with your own hands. Yeah, and, and you know what? That's, that's partly my electrical point of view bleeding over into a mechanical domain, which it has no business being in. <laughs> because, I mean, from my point of view, you know, Electrical engineers, unless you're actually involved in board manufacturing, never make mm-hmm. circuit boards. And that's really, I mean, in the electronics world, that's the closest we get to doing hands-on stuff. So for me, that's like 3D printing. Mm-hmm. But the experience is the same. I, I do the schematic, lay out the board, ship the Gerbers off, print the Gerbers off, and a board comes back. So for me, the the fab house might as well just be you know, a 3D printer right. um, or a CNC machine. I get a, I get a finished product that is a part of something I'm going to build. And you, you mm-hmm. still get the hands-on then when you test the board as well. I mean, just because you're oh, build a mechanical engineer and you don't make the part yourself doesn't mean when it comes back you don't try to assemble all the parts and maybe yeah. file off or trim something and go, oh, we needed a quarter inch off this rod here or, you know, have to chamfer this edge or whatever. Um, you, you maybe do tweaking to the design then, and that's hands-on when you're in the lab trying to get it to work, but you know, your, your time could be better spent elsewhere than spending, you know, a week straight machining all the parts. Mm -hmm. Uh, what I'm curious though is for Adam, how, how does a civil engineer get hands-on? Are you wiring up traffic lights? Are you digging ditches? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) well, there's a a certain amount of, of me saying you get your hands on that barrel and move it. Uh Uh, no, no. Um, actually, and I don't know. I have a suspicion part of it is um, related to size of organization and union rules. I was just going to say, yeah, do you have to be a licensed electrician to touch anything with that? Some stuff. I mean, I can tell somebody how to plug two or what two things to plug together, but I can't actually do it. Okay. Um, And some of that is licensed electrician. Some of it is um, union rules that I'm in a different union in quotes, Uh, Mm -hmm. not, you know, all sorts of ethical issues with the concept of union and engineers. But, um, so I know that that's a certain degree. And I do, from what I've seen, many consultants get a lot more field work than I do. Mm-hmm. But, um, civil engineering in general is a very hands off field. There's testing and things like that, but engineers aren't going to drive the, the equipment. They're not going to be out in the field hanging, um, hanging signals and things, signal heads and things like that. Mm-hmm. I just heard a thousand civil engineers changing their degree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to say that you, you can't occasionally, but that's not what civil engineers do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you might be on site. You might be directing work. You may be, uh, there are some civil engineers who work for contractors. Um, but by and large, civil engineering is not about driving equipment and actually building it. Yeah. But I, I'd have about, to, 
getting it done right and making sure it's done right. Yeah, I'd have to imagine even being in the field, though, is probably pretty hands-on. I mean, yeah, you're not driving the bulldozer, but depending on what goes on, you may have to jump in a ditch and see what's happening or walk to the end of a half-built bridge or, you know. There are some people who do that, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, Um, even though you're not physically doing it, it's still pretty hands-on. I mean, it's more physical than sitting in an office drafting. Yep. Uh, The other thing I would say is someone who's interested in civil engineering and really wants to be hands-on, you're probably better off going for an engineering technician degree than a full engineering degree. Um, just because with licensing and a lot of the way these things work, it tends to be the technician who does the hands-on and the engineer overseeing three to five technicians hmm. and signing the page, signing the paper at the end of the day. Yeah, and the other thing that uh, I think that is different a little bit about those that are doing working on either electronics and I'm notice I'm saying not electrical because there's, you know, if you're talking big power grid systems that, you know, basically if you want to work on power grid systems, you have to work with the system, you know, the big power grids. If you're working on electronics, you could do something in your basement. Yeah. Uh, if you're working on a small mechanical project, you can do it in your basement. But but if I was designing industrial machines, which I did for a while, there was no way I could do that in my garage you know i had to have that done in a, a fairly large machine shop because you know, with overhead hoist to move parts and and get things assembled mm-hmm. uh if you're a chemical engineer and you want to work on plant stuff there's no way you could you know i guess you you know small scale could set up a still or something but that's when you get if, visited if you, by the government <laughs> yes but you know if you want to if you know you want to make certain types of you know fuels or plastic or something you need you know you have to do that on a grand scale and you're not going to be able to do that you know you, you're going to be less hands-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, although my friends who are chemical engineers have told me about times where, you know, the plant shut down and they had to crawl through the pipes to inspect, you know, the, um, you know, the seals or the welds or the instrumentation or whatever was going on. So they, you know, there are those times when you get hands-on, but I think it depends on the, uh, again, on, on which field you're in. Certainly if you're a, uh, say nuclear engineer, uh, it's probably highly suggested you don't try that in your basement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if Adam wants to be hands-on with his field, he can just have a very ornate garden with lots of walkways and bridges. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been to my right. backyard, have you? I have not, no. Jeff oh. made it up there, but not me. <laughs> but, all right, so we don't spend all our time on this one question here. Let's, all right. Uh, What's, uh, yeah, we could talk okay. about being well, hands-on for probably six episodes. <laughs> Yep. If, if we'd only known, we could do the we could have done the entire episode about that. That's eh, all right. We'll, we'll touch some new ground on this one. All right, go ahead. All right. Well, another question, very much outside of the scale of what we would talk about normally, is how important is it to work for a Fortune 500 company as a new grad? Um. Well, and I'll start off because I found this question. My personal opinion is not very important at all. Um, at least in my field, as long as you're working for a uh, a licensed professional engineer out of college and in a, a field, preferably not too specialized. I think your uh, opportunity to move on to another job is, is pretty high. Uh, as soon as you get the, the two letters behind your name, PE. Um, right. But that's just very important in civil engineering. The size of the company I think is uh, far less important. And in some ways, um, I think can be a detriment if you get too focused, too specialized, in a, which is possible in a bigger company and somewhat difficult in uh, smaller firms. 
Yeah, yeah. It seems like the Fortune 500 company, you know, for every for every story you hear about someone who hates it, you'll find someone who loves it too. And it's it's one of those if, if you're just a good fit. Um, I definitely recommend to a student out there doing a co-op with a big company and one with a small company so you could see what environment you like better um, if you have the opportunity to do multiple. You know, I think it comes down to are you a big company person or a small company person? You know, it's in some ways it's easy to be. This is it's too company specific. I was gonna say it's easy to get bored at a small company, and it's also very easy to get bored at a big company. <laughs> generally, generally at big companies, you have the ability to jump around to other product lines, business groups. You know, mm-hmm. even different um, types of work. You can move from manufacturing to design or test or. You know, um, management, you know, there, there's a, there's a wider variety of, uh, opportunities for you. Whereas at a small company, and it depends if it's a lifestyle company or a growth company, you know, it could be as simple as, Hey, if you don't like our product line, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or it can be as fun as, Hey, we're trying to build the next Facebook or Oculus, mm-hmm. you know? There's such a wide range, you can't break it down to whether it's Fortune 500 or not. But I will say that typically Fortune 500 companies tend to be more stable. Um, I know a lot of people, and I know there's counterexamples to what I'm about to say, but from my experience, I know a lot of people who have worked at small companies, startups, etc. And at, you know, you get a bad couple months and all of a sudden big sections of the engineering group are being laid off. You know, and while Fortune 500 companies can have layoffs, typically it's nowhere near the percentage of the workforce. Mm-hmm. But that's just my experience. I know there's counterexamples. Yeah. It also depends on what, uh, you know, what kind of environment you like to work in, too. I mean, odds are if you're at a smaller company, you're going to have a lot of freedom. You're going to have to be, you know, intrinsically motivated and drive yourself to meet deadlines. Whereas if you're at a a larger company or a fortune 500 company, you know, you got management and a system of gates you have to get through and you know, there, there's nothing wrong. I mean, some people just don't work well when it's very open-ended. They need that, you know, little bit of a driving deadline. Like I have to have X, Y, and Z done this month and ABC next month. And you know, they, they maybe wouldn't be as well off if they had to structure that all themselves and do, mm-hmm. you know, deadline management. So, and also don't discount the social factor, which is, you know, if you work at a facility with, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 people, um, it's, it's just like college or high school. It's easy to find friends. Yeah. It's also easy to make connections too. Yeah. It's easy to find, it's easy to make social connections, both friendship and professional that are beneficial to you. You know, you, you spend so much time at work, you know. It's it's a big part of the societal interaction that you have. Mm-hmm. Whereas at a small company, if it's only a dozen people or even up to a hundred people, if you don't like the five or six people that you interact with on a daily basis, there's nowhere else to go find more people at work. Yeah, unless you happen <laughs> to, to work in with. the middle of a downtown where you can get away on lunch or take a walk or something. <laughs> yeah, and it, I've heard horror stories of people who have worked at places where they just they weren't you know, socially compatible with 
the company they work for. And it sounded like the least fun job opportunity ever. Mm-hmm. And they didn't last very long. Yeah. I, I think one of the realities, too, is if you are not, you know, at the top of your class, you didn't, you know, you don't have a stellar GPA, the chances are you're not going to get very far in the interview process because a lot of those companies have a, you know, a bottom tier or bottom rung. And if you don't have a 3.5 GPA or a 3.4 GPA or, what you know, whatever they decide it should be, you're not going to get into interview no matter how talented you might be. Yeah, unless that's still um, true. Mm-hmm. So I've, uh, you know, I know of several engineers who really struggled finding a job right out of school, and they either had to hire on with a contract firm that basically was supplying engineers on a, on a, you know, temporary or hourly basis or whatever you want to call it to the bigger firms, uh, or they had to work for a smaller firm because those were the only firms that would uh, now smaller, you know, as relative to Fortune 500, a Fortune 500 company is pretty huge, uh, but uh, you know they had to find a job with a smaller firm just because they're their GPA didn't uh, didn't allow them to get through that initial um, hiring process. Is that stupid HR, you know, at a large <laughs> firm, basically saying, "Hey, we've got a brick of resumes. Let's let's do the top tier sort based on GPA." It, yeah, exactly, and that, and that's why you know human resources does it because they don't know engineering usually. And they've got to, you know, if something goes bad, at least they can fall back and say, well, this guy had a 3.5 GPA. How was I to know? Well, and GPA is an easy thing to sort on. Yes. It, it, it is. Although I, I noticed, uh, there was, I saw an article a couple months ago that Google's given up, uh, worrying about GPA because they found zero correlation between GPA and, uh, work performance. I believe it. I've never put GPA in my resume. And it's not like I was hiding anything. I had a great GPA, but it's just I always thought it was relevant. Right, but but they're going to ask. I mean, you're if you if you've I've been, actually never been asked. Well, for your first job, uh, they uh, usually they usually ask. They're, they you have they to at least want transcripts, transcripts or something. Yeah, yeah. really. You know, once you, yeah, I've had yeah. to provide transcripts for a lot of my jobs or in internships. I had a lot really? of jobs I applied for that they were online applications, and it would the GPA was a required field. You could not submit it without the GPA. Yeah, I think you just managed <laughs> to slip through a few cracks there. That's not the norm. <laughs> no. Well, it, it, we have a plurality of opinions. <laughs> yeah, if you typed in 2.9 into the uh, the GPA field, it immediately blank out and say goodbye. <laughs> oh, no, no, there was nowhere near that fancy. Uh, they just <laughs> figured out how to make requirements feel safe. And, you know, government jobs, a little bit different application process. Um you know, some of them take as much as five or six hours, but, um, yeah, I, I did run across more than one that was like that. Wow. And these were all entry level jobs. No, um, no higher level jobs were requiring that as far as I know. Right. And, and the good news is for those that are, you know, young engineers and struggling, once you've been in the industry for, you know, three to five years, you can pretty much people quit asking about the GPA and start saying, what have you done? Mm-hmm. Now, if you haven't done anything, you got a problem. But if you have done something, then you can say, well, ignore the GPA. Here's what I can do for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an important point because at the end of the day, companies really, okay, HR may care about GPA, but companies only care about the value that you offer them. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sorry, companies that want to remain in business. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most most of them do want to remain in business. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes, 
not convinced that that is a serious concern for a lot of companies. Oh, I think they want to remain in business. The question is, do they know how to remain in business? Do they know what made them successful in the first place, or did they just get lucky? Ah, uh, that's another podcast. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I <laughs> jot that down for a future episode. You can do an entire podcast off the uh, video that was on Wired today of uh, Balmer laughing at the iPhone when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> So the next the next question we found on Reddit, um, you know, was how many hours per week do you work, and what field are you in? And some of the answers there, you know, they varied. You know, some managers worked more, some worked even more than you'd expect. You know, sixty to seventy hours a week as a mechanical engineer at a startup. But a lot of people said forty to forty five hours. And actually, someone linked to a, a Gallup poll and found that most, you know, the average full-time worker in the U.S. is working about 47 hours per week, which I found pretty interesting. But I don't think this is broken down by engineers. Hmm. Well, I can tell you that at the the first job that I worked, um, which was General Motors, we had three, I'm trying to remember, it's been a number of years ago, we had, I think we had two or three mandatory Saturdays a month. So we, you'd work your normal 40 hours and then you'd be expected to come in and work the extra eight hours, two or three weekends a month. Um, now, the, you know, it depended on which division you were in, but this particular division that I was working for had that. And so you were expected to come in. And I remember working a number of night shifts since I was low man on the totem pole. I would have to pull my shift from, you know, say, midnight till 8 a.m., Ooh. <laughs> and uh, so that was that was pretty tough to uh, uh, to come in and basically wander around down. And, you know, at that point, we were doing a lot of testing in test cells. These were transmissions that we were testing and, you know, wandering around the outside of the tra- transmission test cells with the engines running and a nice little hum going and the, you know, the overhead fluorescent lights flickering. It's like, oh, that was a real chore trying to stay awake and, and uh, be productive, uh, be productive at, at all. But I was there and I did my time. Um, the, we, we talked last episode with Mike Lockman and when, uh, when I was working there, it was, you know, it was 40 or 45 hours a week. I didn't put in lots and lots of overtime. Uh, but then when I was working at the machine shop, it was mandatory 55 hours a week. You worked a, you worked a 10 hour day and you came in for five hours on the weekend on Saturday. So, uh, Damn. <laughs> you know, it, it, it depends on the, it depends on the company and the position, and, and a lot of it depends on the economy. When the economy's not doing well, everybody works a lot less. Or a lot more so they can keep their job. <laughs> <laughs> or a lot more, right. Yeah, yeah. I've been fortunate so far that everywhere I've worked, it's always been a, a pretty steady 40-hour work week, um, with the exception being if the production line shut down, you are there until it's back up again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, whether it was at jobs that had manufacturing on site or, you know, with my current job, if a customer who buys our parts has an issue with them and can't produce until we figure out root cause, then you're, you're pulling late nights and early mornings and weekends, depending on when it all falls until it, until it, uh, gets solved. Yeah. Or when I have new silicon come back, those first two weeks definitely are all crazy working two, you know, extra hours and stuff, but, benefit there is at least in my company they'll, they'll slide you an extra vacation day or whatever once the madness dies down so oh, that's nice. yeah yeah if i work you know 
a bunch of extra hours one week validating silicon or solving a customer issue and the next week i'm flying home to buffalo or whatever to see my family i'll uh you know i'll say hey i'm taking leaving at lunchtime or whatever and they'll say don't worry about vacation time so that's nice i right. lucked well, out there I, don't, I can't say that's the norm <laughs> so what about you adam how many hours a week are they expecting you to put in well uh right now um, now that I've got a, a kind of permanent position, most of the engineers in my office also work 40 hours a week, occasionally okay. a few extra. Um, when I was in construction, and a lot of the people in construction work far more than that. Um, I was putting in 60-plus hour weeks on a regular basis yeah. in construction. But um, that's Were you a, getting overtime? Yes, I was. That is a beautiful thing that most engineers do. At least once you've gotten a full-time position, a salary position, you don't, you don't get. But um, when you're young and you're working, you know, either you're working for a company that pays over time or you're working on an hourly basis, that those extra hours sure add up quick. Yeah, and for me, it was all voluntary. I mean, I was going to have to work some, but I wasn't going to have to work that many. So mm-hmm. it, yeah. it, I brought it on myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but realizing that from then on out, it was 40-hour weeks. Yeah. And, you know, except if I've got a public meeting or something and it's real busy, you know, maybe it's five extra hours. Maybe. Right. So, Brian, what question do you have for us? Well, uh, I chose something that I thought actually goes across multiple engineering disciplines. So what is the right programming language for engineering? There is none. <laughs> and <I'm, laughs> don't learn one. Oh, it's you want to fad. <laughs> You want to start a fight, I see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and I guess it's kind of like asking which toolbox or which tool in the toolbox is right for engineering. Yeah. Um, the, the only right answer is it depends. But um, if you're doing embedded, I would say C. If you're doing Windows development, I'll just give my first intuitive answers and then we can argue. Uh if you're doing Windows development, probably C Sharp, Java, or Python. Um, if you're doing hardware description, probably I've now been informed that uh, Verilog is the proper answer to that question. And uh, simulation, probably MATLAB or Python, um, or many of the various Python toolkits. Uh, yeah. Fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give the, uh, the very general answer of, I think uh, there's two very distinct schools of thought in my opinion. And, um, I'm relatively proficient with Python. I was relatively proficient with, uh, v- uh visual basic for applications, Microsoft VBA which I think are completely different schools of thought in programming. Um, one being pseudo event based and the other being, um, is it object oriented? Um, and I think that both of them are great for me to learn in practice. I use none, but, uh, <laughs> you know, Python to C plus plus to C it's not that big of a transition. If you learn one, you can extend that to something else. And that I think is more important is, is understanding how to program than the language. Yeah. Once you get that mentality of how to structure your thoughts and how to, uh, 
you know, think and code, quote unquote, um, just becomes a roughly matter of formatting. And I say this as someone with almost no programming <laughs> experience. <laughs> but the only exception to all that is VHDL, which is a your you know Verilog, which is not like sequential programming at all. You're you're thinking in circuits and programming in circuits essentially, from what I understand. Yeah, and I, I was always under the impression that VHDL was the heavyweight or the uh, 10,000-pound gorilla in that domain, but I've recently been informed by people in the know that Verilog is the most popular hardware description language. Hmm. Well, I do know there's a whole bunch of flavors of Verilog for, you know, Verilog A yeah. for analog work, and you know I'm sure there's a bunch of others, but I know it's not just straight digital. You can do some analog stuff in there. Yeah, and it depends, too, on the... So the mix of there may be a programming language you like personally, but for engineering work, you've also got to consider what the industry standards are. So if you decide to leave the company, you know, the company needs to know that they can find somebody else to do the work uh, and what the, um, you know, what the available tool kits are or, or tool sets are. So if you like to do something with, a, you know, a high end piece of software, but it costs one hundred thousand dollars per license. And the options are something that's open source and free. Now, now typically the stuff that's high end normally gets more support, but, but that's not always true. And so your, your management may be encouraging you to use something that's a little less expensive and, and you may not have much of a choice in the matter. Um, so, I mean, when I, when I did low end stuff, I really liked, I haven't done it in many years, but I really liked writing, uh, assembly code. But there's no way that I can be efficient writing assembly code, you know, on a on a you know a constant basis. I just don't do it often enough to to be to be good at it. And I really liked writing fourth code. And anybody who's written fourth code knows that it's just so cool to be able to string those those commands together and it's sort of like writing your own programming language as you go along. But the reality is once you get done, nobody else can interpret it. <laughs> and so and so fourth isn't. Uh, I thought that was just I mean, regular I, coding. Well, that's that's true too. Uh, uh, so it, you know, uh, the right programming language is not just that which you're efficient in, but which is good for you know for your company for your enterprise as well. You know, I'll even throw out um, at least around my office Excel. Being able to do crazy things. You're going things. to throw out Excel? No, no. I'm going to throw out that being able to do crazy <laughs> things in Excel is uh, way more important than being able to program. Um, I can only think of a handful of people who could, in my, around my office, who would feel comfortable writing code in detail other than just pulling snippets together. Yeah. And many of them are in IT. Actually, most, mm -hmm. I would say, are IT people. Mm -hmm. um, but being able to... You know, go beyond just summing up columns in Excel right. um, and starting to do things like lookups. Way more powerful tool than than or way more useful tool than programming, uh, at least around my office. Well, you could do with all that. You could do all that with a programming language. Is is just you've got the the support of a nice graphical user interface, and somebody else will be able to figure it out. Yeah, at least in my field. Uh, although I am always reticent about about taking values from a spreadsheet because i've seen so many spreadsheets that have errors you know mm -hmm. they somebody's <laughs> copy and pasted and they've forgotten it's always yeah. the you know missed a line they missed a line or it all but a cell somewhere else it doesn't exist or 
exactly. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem is if you've, I mean, you can go in and you can lock cells and you can do validation tests. You can, you, there are ways to get around it, but most people don't ever do that. And so as long as the result looks somewhat reasonable, nobody ever questions the number they're getting. Well, same thing can happen when you're programming in a, a programming language too. You right. Know, garbage in, garbage out. Oh, it's not fun until the compiler lies to you. <laughs> and and what do you mean by the compiler lying to you? Oh, you can have a... Uh, I'm probably making up this term, a miscompile. But uh, the assembly does not, and machine code does not behave the way the high-level language described ah. the routine. Oh. And, and it, it oftentimes comes down to... You know, the optimization level of the C compiler. Um, you know, when the compiler starts interpreting what you're doing and deciding that things, some things that you're doing might not be efficient or aren't required and strips it out in order to, or combines it with other routines and, you know, bad things happen. Right. So we've talked, we, I think it was episode 10, we talked with uh, Greg Wilson of Software Carpentry about well, software we, skills. Well, we didn't and, do anything back in episode 10. Oh, I'm sorry, Chris <laughs> and I. <laughs> uh, and then uh, we, we, had, uh, we had another uh, guest on, and I've, his name escapes me, who talked about some of the software skills. Uh, but, but so what's, what do you guys find? What's the general level of software skills? Do engineers know how to do programming I, and maybe it's different for you know depending on whether you're a double e or or civil or whatever but um do do they know do engineers know how to program because it sure seems like the engineering profession is more and more programming these days yes i mean i i, I think engine most engineers come out of college and i think most undergraduate engineering programs at least force you to do some procedural programming of some kind Mm-hmm. You know, and that may be C, C++ or Java, but at that point it doesn't matter. You know how to do procedural programming. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like the, the high-end calculator, if you will, in the, uh, in engineering is MATLAB. Um, right. Which effectively is per, I mean, it's a, what do you call it? Jeff, is a more safe, safe to say it's a scripting language. MATLAB? Yeah. Hey, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna do that. I mean, it it does have a a certain amount of uh, sort of runtime compile that goes on for optimization, but but it acts as though it's a scripting language. So yeah, I mean, or you know, any scientific computing language, but uh, it's it, I would say it'd be tough to be in an R and D group without knowing MATLAB or doing any sort of analysis without MATLAB. Just like I think if you were doing you know, machine or tool interface or uh, equipment interface. It'd be tough not to know LabVIEW. Yeah, yeah. It depends on it depends on what you're doing. So if True. if uh, you know, you can do a lot of the same things you could do in MATLAB with you know for for a lot of years, Fortran was the scientific computing language, and and it, what really was you know what it depended upon were where were the libraries, you know, where the yeah. in MATLAB uh, terms, where were the toolboxes. Uh, so if you had, you know, you could do linear algebra. If you had the uh, the Fortran code for doing linear algebra, there was no reason not to use Fortran. And for a lot of years before MATLAB existed, uh, that's that's how it got done. And as you know, then people started moving stuff over to C or C plus plus. 
that's fine. But, but it's somewhere in that transition, you know, MATLAB came along and, and, uh, made basically what they did was they added a lot of toolboxes. So if you could afford it, uh, you didn't have to waste your time making sure all these toolboxes were compiled correctly and ran correctly. And, you know, uh, you could be a little more productive. So, you know, my big issue with MATLAB is it's great. I enjoy programming in MATLAB, but if you're, you're not working for a company that can afford a thousand dollars a toolbox, then it's kind of cost prohibitive. So, and that's a great point because, um, and, but I would make the, I would take that a different way. Okay. Which is, I mean, we've all sat in meetings where people say, you know, 10 engineers sitting in a meeting, how much did this meeting cost? Right. You know, um, nothing because none of them are accountants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a good little open source guy. I, I desperately would like to be using Python instead of MATLAB. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if I look at how much time, I would spend replicating a lot of the toolkits in MATLAB. Yep. And if I actually had to <laughs> account for my cost as an engineer to replicate some of those libraries, right? It, buying MATLAB and all the libraries, my company comes out way ahead. Yep. Yeah. Be because somebody else is testing those libraries. Yes. And supporting those libraries. And if you go away nobody you know somebody they your company doesn't have to worry about somebody else coming in and trying to understand your code uh because you've used matlab and they can call up matlab and matlab you know one would think for years and years will be supporting that code well and if you think about it my company or your company or anyone's company is not paying you to develop a library that somebody else has paid you uh, somebody else has already done they're paying you to solve a you know, tactical engineering question, you know, right. find out why this machine isn't working the way it's supposed to find out why the yields are low, find out, you know, why we're, you know, design a new widget. Yeah. But, but optimizing the nonlinear solver is so much fun to do. <laughs> That's true. That's what I spend my days wistfully wishing I could do. <laughs> so I, often while I balk at the cost of some of these tools, you do have to think about your time. And right. not and not in a selfish way, but like in a justifying your job kind of a way. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I'm glad we solved that one once and for all. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I liked I liked Adam's answer best, which is, you know, there is no silver bullet programming language. Just learn how to program and don't be afraid to learn new things. Oh, I thought his answer was throw out Excel. <laughs> that was his second answer, which was also very elegant. Uh, I, I kind of wish I could, but nobody else would like that. Well, this day will go down in internet history. The day it was solved. <laughs> <laughs> Settled that debate. No more flame wars. <laughs> yeah. About this topic, I'm not being idealistic here. <laughs> the correct answer to that also is C. You can interpret what I said as C. Because that's kind yes. of that's the root of most mo or many modern computer languages. I figured you meant C, Adam. Oh, okay. Good. And when Jess said assembly, he meant C. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> well, so I will throw in a uh, another question that I came across, and somebody was looking for websites for uh, parts, and in particular, they were looking for mechanical parts. 
And from time to time, I get questions from people uh, about, you know, hey, where can I find this little this little gear, this little wheel, or this thingamajob? And you know, there are just a ton of manufacturers of parts out there, and so it's hard. You know, every single different part has a, uh, a series of manufacturers uh, that make those things. But in general, usually there are three or four. For the kind of questions I get asked, it's usually small parts, and I can I can send people to three or four places uh, for small belts and drives and gears and that kind of stuff. I found uh, stock drive products uh, to be pretty good. Um, I'll put a link in the notes, but they're at SDP for stock drive products. SDP-SI.com. Uh, there's a company uh, that also makes small, you know, belts and drives and gears and that kind of stuff. Uh, W.M. Berg, B-E-R-G. So that's W-M-B-E-R-G.com. Um, and so those are for the small things. If you're looking just in general and you don't know where else to start, again, the sort of the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the first place I go for a lot of stuff is McMaster Car. Uh, yes. So th- their <laughs> website is McMaster, M-C-M-A-S-T-E-R.com. And uh, so they... Anymore, people go to the website, but in, in the past, when the internet was not widely available, they had a big honking yellow book, and you would I would go from engineering office to engineering office, and anybody who had to search for parts, I could look look on their shelf, and they had one of these McMaster Mar, uh, McMaster Car uh, catalogs sitting there. So sometimes it's fun they have the catalogs still. You you see stuff you think you need or maybe useful, and you just order it because it it looks good. <laughs> find yeah. some stuff that comes in handy that way someday I'll have a use for that billet of titanium <laughs> <laughs> well I think it's kind of hard to page through the internet and uh, you know look at pictures it is yeah. no it, you're right oh yeah I find that on digikey half the time I'll order a part you know thankfully not a super expensive part and a somewhat wrong package because it's, it's the footprint slightly off from the picture they put on or what have you mm-hmm. It's, it's frustrating. Right. So, so for, for electrical parts, you know, I assume you guys are going like DigiKey and Mouser and that kind of stuff. Is, is that different from what you d- use on your, you know, day-to-day job? I mean, for your company work, do they have you going somewhere else for parts? No, pretty much DigiKey, Mauser, uh, Newark, you know, Farnell now, I guess. Um, we'll, we'll typically do our orders from DigiKey because that's where we do most of our business. And then branch out from there if it's a specialty uh, specialty piece that Digikey may not have. Like um, a lot of our parts come from the vendors themselves, you know, inductors, capacitors, uh, thermistors and stuff because we're, we're, they're trying to get their new products in for the next generation and they have to hitch a ride on our circuits and vice versa. So, yeah. uh, you know, if the, the new FET manufacturer is like, hey, we got these new FETs for Intel's new set of specs can you guys use them in your designs and you know you'll, you'll try to work out business deals that way and so i i have tons of sample kits from different inductor and capacitor vendors and not so much the fet guys i usually know the fets i want ahead of time but you know so going to the vendors themselves and getting a sample kit is is really good if you're going to do you know a reasonable amount of volume or you know you can you can talk them into it mm-hmm. i always started digikeeper you know, even when I'm looking for, even when I'm looking for something that I don't even know exists, their parametric search is, I think, second to none. Yeah, it's gotten better too. I remember it used to be kind of a pain in the butt, but I find myself getting a lot of better answers from them a lot quicker than I used to. 
and, and sometimes I'm even just looking for the people that are in that industry. I just want to list the manufacturers and I'll then go to the manufacturer page and oh yeah, and look for stuff that they might not have on Digikey. And then off to either Octopart or Fine Chips to find people who actually have it in stock. Mm-hmm. Um, I've used but, it for thermocouples because uh, Omega, I think, is the big thermocouple company. If I'm remembering yeah. correctly, yeah, they're the the number of parts they have on DigiKey is you know pretty reasonable, but we needed some extremely extremely thin thermocouples for an application, and they you know they you get on their site and they have a hundred hundred of just like thirty gauge or thirty two gauge thermocouples, and so I don't I don't know what I want, so thankfully they had support. <laughs> <laughs> so and I would also recommend two sites. Uh, you might have heard of these, Amazon and eBay. <laughs> I've heard of them. Yes, and Amazon even it's, has that uh, Amazon Supply Company now, or AmazonSupply.com for, yeah. you know, it's kind of like a McMaster-esque site. Because there's, at least in electronics, there's a class of parts that just aren't going to be available to onesie, twosie kind of people. Yeah. You know, people who are doing, w- without having to interact with a FEA or um, some part of the company's sales pipeline where you have to then lie and say you're going to have 10,000 a year. <laughs> you know, it's, it's simple things sometimes, you know, batteries, for example, yeah. you go on Amazon, you're going to get a better selection than if you go on Mauser or DigiKey. Mm-hmm. Sadly. <laughs> yeah. I also you would, might, nope, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, my sense is that on Amazon though, you better know what you're looking at because the, the specifications are pretty minimal. Yeah, that one, that, you know, half paragraph of copy-paste garbage is uh, <laughs> yeah. generally not very helpful. Yeah, I haven't I mean, used Amazon Supply to too much, but hopefully they're a little better. Anyone ever try Alibaba? No, I haven't. That's successful. I've always been, I've always been afraid to. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'd also recommend, uh, you know, just a local vendor, too. I mean, we, we work with a guy right here in Raleigh uh, who's got his own own shop and you know it's not for like resistors or chips or anything but in terms of just kind of general lab equipment like microscopes or tweezers or hand tools stuff like that um our few very few mechanical needs we have i think he can service as well and lab benches and stuff and you know maybe, maybe he doesn't have the greatest prices compared to Amazon or whatever. I don't know. I don't deal with them, but I do know, you know, because we've been such a long-term customer, he'll cut us a discount. He'll do uh, same-day shipping if he's going to be in our area anyways. Um, so you get a lot of extra benefits. And when I first started, you know, they, they gave me a few catalogs and I was going to look through them. And then I got a chance to sit down and talk with him when he came in and he would say, you know, oh, no, you don't want this tool. I Everybody goes with this one for this reason and you'll have a lot better luck with it. So you get that local advice that pops in just to see how you're doing. Right. So dis- despite uh, the maybe common perception that, that sales engineers are just there to annoy you, uh, there are a number of sales engineers who do their job very well and can be quite helpful in, in uh, assisting you in picking out the right part. Yeah, exactly. You can help you find stuff you didn't know you need that turns out to be very useful. Also, you know, if it's somebody else's money, I really have no problem buying more tools than I think I'll need. <laughs> yeah. Because you never know. The other advantage to going local, um, I ran across a, a vendor for uh, electrical enclosures. And uh, we went out to their shop and it's like, well, this isn't exactly what we need. You know, but if this with, you know, this enclosure with this thing in it, oh, yeah, sure, we'll put that together. And, and they just, 
they made a custom part for us and it wasn't any big deal because they were local and we could go to their shop and we could just say, oh, well, if you put this here, that would be great. And they just took notes right there on the, on the, uh, on the shop floor with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of along those same lines, I was just wondering, um, we, I was talking about the, uh, uh, the McMaster car catalog. And there are certain catalogs that I have accumulated over the years that I keep going back uh, to time after time, like I would a textbook. So if I'm doing, you know, if I'm doing, uh, if uh, I'm sizing a bearing, a bore for a bearing, there is an (laughs) SKF catalog that I've been going to for 20 years. You know, that is my catalog for, for, you know, those bearing sizes. Mm -hmm. Or uh, if I'm using a snap ring, I've got an old, um, True Arc Snap Ring. The, the company's been bought and sold a couple of times, I think. Um, but, you know, I still go back to that catalog for, for uh, determining how big the slot should be for the snap ring, that kind of thing. So do you guys have other catalogs you go to all the time? Uh, I wouldn't call them catalogs, but, you know, you can get, uh, for the electrical engineers, you can get the data books from, you know, TI or analog devices or Intercell or, you know, all the old companies before the Internet was, mm-hmm. that's how you would distribute you know information on your parts and there'd be little app notes thrown in there and stuff and you'll see engineers who save those for years and years and years because you know there's that one diagram that always comes in handy or that one derivation that maybe got thrown out in a new uh in a new revision or something right actually uh our old guest todd nelson has got a pretty good article on the history of data books for electrical engineers if anyone's interested Oh, neat. Yeah, yeah. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's obscure, but MicroSemi has probably the best transient protection applications guide I've ever seen. It could be a textbook. Um, you know, it's a, it's a topic that you typically aren't going to find in any textbook for the most part, mm-hmm. at least at an undergraduate level. And uh, otherwise, Edmund Optics, that was a great one. I don't get that catalog anymore, but it was probably my favorite. <laughs> I th- I think that qualifies us as geeks when we have a favorite engineering catalog. <laughs> yeah, Edmund Optics was a weird catalog because I mean it's optics equipment, but they would always have a female on the cover. You know, like kind of like they were tangentially trying to. Uh, I, I'm sorry to use the phrase "sex up" their their product line. It's like this is probably the least appropriate place that you could do that yeah yeah and without fail every catalog you'd get would look exactly the same <laughs> yeah well there's no fixing that i'm afraid <laughs> no <laughs> well, there is but it's a it's an uphill battle it's a slow yeah, process yeah. right not saying it shouldn't be done well no we i mean we've we've had uh, uh, a couple of episodes recently where we talked about trying to open up engineering to uh, uh to those who are not a always uh, welcome you know, so to say welcome in the field yeah, yeah. and uh, so that that type of attitude doesn't help well it wasn't gratuitous i'm just <laughs> I, I shouldn't make it sound any worse than it is but <laughs> right well maybe maybe we'll just move on to the next question who's up who's up next <laughs> adam you found this next one. Oh, okay yeah so, uh, there was a question from a high schooler who was interested in engineering and was, uh, just looking for some advice on, uh, what would be beneficial to them. Um, and, uh, well, my, uh, my first bit of advice would be math and science. 
take lots and lots of math and science as much as you can in high school. Um, it'll help even if you can't apply it as credits. It'll help you get through engineering school, which is kind of the first, which is the first step in my mind. Um, and then depending on what fields of engineering and uh, this, uh, this person asked about several fields, uh, from biomedical to manufacturing and computer, computer engineering. Um, pick things up and, and do whatever you do things. Um, whether it's putting together kits or designing something and, and building it up, just start doing things and get an appreciation for how the world works. Any of you guys got any uh, other wonderful advice? Uh, yeah. You mean get get some hands-on experience and enjoy it because once you become an engineer, they won't let you touch anything? Well, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd also say, uh, you know, I mean, if you look into, like, you know, SparkFun, go to the maker fairs, go to, you know, you know SparkFun event if they come through your area or – See, I, I got lucky enough when I was in high school, um, the local community college just somehow wound up with grant money and they did, uh, three summer courses for high school students in engineering. And one was mechanical based where you learned about rockets. One was, um, an electrical course where you did the parallax, uh, board of education, the BOE bot with the basic stamp. And then the other one was kind of like just a general engineering science where they covered all sorts of physics and, and stuff and uh i i took all three because i kind of nerded out there in high school what did i have to do <laughs> um and it was it was a lot of fun and i got to see you know a machine shop and you know figure out all right mechanical's cool but i don't like it as much as i liked electrical and oh man this physics crap is hard i'm glad i got to see it early uh so you know if you can look around for something like that a lot of colleges will have programs for high school occasionally um I'd also say talk to, you know, your, your guidance counselor or anything and see if your school has a program where they could set you up with a shadow where, you know, you can go for a day and, you know, get, follow an engineer around and see what they do. And that, that helped me a lot in high school too. I mean, I followed, uh, I went with a buddy and we followed a mechanical engineer who worked at a, a plant around. And that's how I knew I did not want to be a manufacturing engineer. I wanted to go into R&D because <laughs> I got to watch him go about his day. And I was like, well, this seems not exciting at all. <laughs> Adam, you brought up a lot of good points or a lot of good resources. And I was just thinking this is really one of the best times you can be alive or coming of age and have interest in engineering because a lot of the tools, suppliers, packages that are available just weren't around uh when i was younger um you know there were some classes you could take um but you there was no there was nothing like spark fun there was nothing like an arduino i mean the best thing you could do is you know write crappy video games for your ti-84 calculator <laughs> yeah it just yep, hey that, that's good experience you learn how to use scarce resources efficiently <laughs> yeah Go-to statements upon go-to statements. But the, you know, there really shouldn't be an excuse. In terms of getting your hands on stuff, there's so many widely available cheap options. Yeah. You know, just go to your local makerspace. Like the one here in town actually has Arduinos in a vending machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're they're popping up everywhere. There's uh, there's, there's two radio uh, or two 
two maker spaces here in Raleigh. There used to be a tech shop, but that, that closed down sadly. Um, there's a ham, ham radio place about an hour outside of Raleigh, a ham radio club. And, you know, as a high school kid, you know, it's hard to get around if you don't have a car or parents will drive you, but you know, there's, there's, there's usually something close enough. If you're, if you're, you really do have that drive to learn more about it, you can, you can find something. Yeah. And, uh, at this point in time with the internet and all these resources, uh, I'll attest it's completely possible to teach yourself some disciplines of engineering. At least, um, yeah. To a, to some degree. Yes. Probably nuclear and chemical mostly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just Google plutonium and trying to get some and you know, <laughs> yeah, Google yellow cake. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I'm not saying to the level of a, uh, a specifically trained engineer, but, um, you can at least, you know, hold your own in some conversations and, yeah. and uh, you know, speak intelligently surely based off what you learn on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, be able to direct your, you know, your college, you know, college career towards something you know you like, you know, if you try your hand at a few different things from tearing apart cars and learning about how they work or small engine repair on a lawnmower or something and you play around with an Arduino and you know, go to makerspace, you, you may be able to find some idea of what you want to focus on. So you're not that kid in college who's undeclared engineering for the first year and a half. Yeah, I think the focus on math and science is important because it is the tool that we use to manipulate the, the models that we create as engineers. But I think the passion has to be coming from something else. You know, I, I when I was growing up, I had seen machines being built in the the machine shop that my dad worked at and i said hey that's cool that's what i want to do i you know i remember that they were working on a machine and they had row after row of electronic uh, relays and you could hear the clicking of these relays it was all you know this was the days before a programmable logic controller so it was all you know mechanical relays and you could hear them clicking um and i was just big, big, these big electronic cabinets full of them. And I was fascinated by that. How did those, how did those relays, uh, make the machinery work? And so I went to school trying to, I started out in inter, what they called interdisciplinary engineering because I was trying to take as much electronics and as much mechanical engineering together so I could, uh, put this thing together in, into what I guess we'd now call mechatronics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a whole degree in and of itself now. Yeah. But, but I knew, I knew what I wanted to do. If there was any doubt in school when I was going through it that this is what I thought engineers did, I knew, hey, this is this is why I'm, I'm doing it. And, and uh, when I got out of school and uh, heard about this degree at Stanford that we talked about last episode with uh, Mike Lockman again, you know, they this design program was what they called smart product design, and they were using microprocessors. And I said, ah. Okay, I, I don't want to be using relays. I want to be using microprocessors to program this these mechanical devices. And it's like this is what I need to be doing. And so, I think having that, I think having a passion beyond just I'm good at math and science mm-hmm. um, is really important in driving you through, at least driving most people through the you know the engineering curriculum, uh, because it's not for most people at least it's not easy. And there's a lot of places where if you're not inspired to do it there's a reason you're doing it i think it's it's way too easy to give up yeah yeah if you just pick engineering because you're good at math and science and you heard it pays well then 
you 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 have you're an you have an uphill battle. I mean, <laughs> you can get through the curriculum. You can you know, you know, you can you can do pretty well. But yeah, you'll find the best engineers are always the one who had that spark. You know, to get started young and you know, not necessarily that you have to be pushing the boundaries of human knowledge by the time you're 22 or anything. But <laughs> right. So, do you guys know of any programs that get young people out to engineering? Uh, businesses? I, I don't. Personally, I wish there were there were more of those types of opportunities. Yeah, I, I got set up through my school guidance counselor at the time. I don't think there was a, a formal program or anything. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the classes I took at the community college, I only heard about because my, my shop teacher at the time, who taught us basic electronics and stuff, knew. You know, he heard about it through something. And so he told us, you know, me and my two friends who did it with me said, you know, this is something you guys should do. If you're if you're serious about this stuff, right? So I, I I lucked out with having a good good teacher and you know a guidance counselor who knew somebody to get me in. But you know, I, you know, you're you're in high school. You know, you don't have a professional network, but you know, maybe your dad knows a guy who knows a guy who can get you in somewhere, or your mom, you know, is a you know engineer or scientist or knows somebody who can, right? Or you know, even. Uh, I don't know, shoot an email off to a college professor and ask them. <laughs> right. SWE does a very good program at uh, my university where they um, they bring in, I believe, they are junior high age girls. And uh, uh, I think they build. it's usually some sort of practical engineering project. And the last time I saw it, they were making gliders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more mechanical projects. Yeah, my my school uh, RIT. By the time I, by the time I graduated, they had a program that was two years running. So they started about my third year or so, and uh, it was it was called like Imagine RIT or whatever. And it was just like a whole. It was not quite a maker fair. It was more of it was like a big big science fair. And it was open to the general public, and you know you could buy tickets and you could go around the college and. Every college had something on display. Even the liberal arts college had something, you know, going on. And we'd have the micro e guys out doing, you know, maybe not taking you into the fabs, but pointing stuff out through the windows. And, you know, the robotics club would be there on campus running around with the robots and, you know, just, just looking for events like that in your area. I mean, would be a big help, too, if you wanted to get started because then you're with this whole group of people that, you know, could point you in better directions as you see something you like and say, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And mind you, none of this stuff existed 20 years ago. No, no. I mean, you didn't have battle bots and, you know, I mean, you might've had a robot club here or there at a high school, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't at the it same wasn't level, a well-connected. Yeah. There's no first robotics or anything. Exactly. You know, I think a lot of these programs are also heavily tied to um, universities Mm-hmm. And so if you're in an area that isn't close to an engineering university, um, I know a lot of the science fairs in my area are science and engineering fairs now. Um, and that may be a way to, to get into a couple things and, and try your hand at some engineering. Yeah, or if um, there's a museum or something by you, they may have a program or can point you in the direction of other mm-hmm. things in the area. Um, another, maybe not a great way for something a high schooler can do, but... Uh, another way to get high schoolers involved is there's something called National Engineering Week that um, encourages engineers to get into the high schools during that week to do projects with the high schoolers. 
Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's just building a tower out of spaghetti and marshmallows or um, even just talking about what they do. Neat. So bring the engineer to the students as opposed to the other way around. Yep. So, Carmen, what's your what's your next question? Uh, the next question, uh, it's not really a specific question. Um, it's just something I, I see pop up in a lot of the engineering subreddits, whether they're electronic related or not. And usually someone's talking about a project they have to do. And, you know, they'll say, oh, I have a, you know, 12 volt input from a wall wart or I have this <laughs> 18 volt battery or whatever. And I have to get down to five volts or 3.3 volts. And, you know, can I just use a resistor divider or whatever? And w w without getting into a whole power electronics course, because this is not the, the medium for that, um, you know, in, in general, I would just like to address anybody out there who doesn't know, you know, power or whatever, is that no, if you're trying to power anything, really, you can't just use two resistors hanging off of a, a voltage source. Um, and the reason for that is because it's not actually regulated so yeah you could rig up two resistors to you know make five volts from 18 volts but a you're going to be burning a lot of power uh and b you know as you pull current from that output node you're also changing what voltage you're getting as well so it's not going to stay five volts it's going to drop to four volts or three volts or whatever and you're going to cook something and you know for anybody who wants to learn more about it you know there's always the app notes from various companies out there you know everybody's got three terminal regulators or switching regulators if you're going to do more than a few watts of power because then linear regulators become very inefficient and switching regulators take over and i'd also recommend um the art of electronics has got a good chapter i forget if it's the one where they introduce transistors or start talking about diodes or something but you know they work through those examples where they say okay you just have a resistor divider why does this, you know, suck as a a voltage source? And, you know, you, you go through the math and you can see it's, you know, a simple math. You know, if you have a couple math classes under your belt, you'll be able to follow it. And then they take it to the next level and say, okay, what if you do a, a resistor in a, a Zener diode and a capacitor for a little bit of filtering? That's okay. That's better. Now, what if you put uh, a transistor in there to buffer it? And, you know, it, it builds on itself and you can see, oh, okay, I could see why for you know, a handful of handful of parts, you know, a resistor, capacitor, diode, and transistor, you can make a reasonably passable reasonably uh passable supply and it's you know maybe it isn't gonna power a whole motor, but it'll it'll get you your little circuit board going and then you can kind of jump off from there. So The Art of Electronics is a well known book. I, I there are lots of people, at least in the mechatronics world, that swear by it. They they refer to it all the time for a little electronics help. But the reality oh, I is, I still look at it too. I mean, it, it 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 hasn't been published in a long time, and the <laughs> cost the cost. I'm looking at Amazon now. It says buy new a hundred and twenty one dollars. <laughs> I'm sorry, a hundred and twenty dollars and twenty one cents. Yes. Um, if you want to, if you want to buy. If you want to buy it used, it's $71.41. Yeah, and I'm sure you could find it secondhand somewhere for cheaper than that or, you know, we don't we don't condone less reputable ways of getting it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... Yes, folks, Carmen is suggesting you steal mm -hmm. this book. Yes, <laughs> just, just throw the brick through the campus bookstore window and <laughs> dive in and take it. Um, 
<laughs> no, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not a print, but, you know, something like this for the analog electronics aspect of it, you know, voltage, three terminal voltage regulators, you know, they, they've changed a little bit throughout the years to add new features and stuff. But, you know, the basic theory behind why you don't want to just use two resistors to power a whole circuit board is, is pretty well proven in that, you know, 20 year old book is going to you know, explain it pretty well. And I mean, yeah, the cost is a little high, but I just happen to know that that one specifically walks you through, you know, a few examples of why this isn't good. And okay, this way improves it a little more and then a little more and a little more. And uh, it, I found it pretty useful as I was paging through one day. You know, and, and I was looking at that question on Reddit and it was, uh, you know, one thing that I think if a novice is looking at it for a three terminal re- linear regulator, you know, you the three terminals you've got a gazinta a gazada and a ground <laughs> yeah you know i mean it's way more complicated than that internally but at the same time you know i think sometimes all people need to know is the jumping off point mm-hmm. like yeah you know. yeah and messing around with the three terminal regulator is a good way to get started because it, it's simple enough where you you can just pick it up with the the data sheet or the app note or you know a, you know one of these getting started in electronics books whether it's Forest Mims or the Art of Electronics or one of the Make books, um, but you know if you you decide you like you know that whole circuit aspect of electronics you can dive into what makes a voltage regulator a regulator and then all of a sudden oh you're learning about op amps you're learning about current sources you're learning about transistors and and especially linear regulators are great because oftentimes people want to do things that require a little bit of juice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're using a linear regulator, all of a sudden you're very quickly forced to deal with power dissipation. Yeah, and that's that's something that will always creep up on you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a wonderful, it's a very quick, wonderful exercise in trade studies or trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And then as you as you get into higher powers or, you know, more demanding applications and you realize, oh, well, the linear regulator just isn't going to cut it. You know, I only have this little project box to work with and I don't have room for this massive heat sink. Or, you know, I need I need tighter regulation on, on transients or something. And, you know, you jump into switching regulators from there and that that's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, even if you're trying to drive a whole bunch of LEDs, I mean, it's not a trivial, it's not trivial with a linear regulator. No. As soon as you get more than, you know, three, four watts of power dissipation. Yeah. Which is, you know, 12 volts to, you know, five volts and help me on the current. What is that, 200 milliamps? Uh, something like that. No. Okay, everybody, grab their calculator. This is why, this is why you don't. This is why I always say, don't do math on air. <laughs> Anything more than two times two is, you know, not something you should be doing. Yeah, that was one point four watts. Yeah, but yeah, so which is actually still a ton of heat. Yes. Oh, yes. One watt will get something pretty darn hot. I I have some pretty cooked inductors that'll speak to that one. Well, they're not cooked, but whatever. So the short answer is. No, don't use a uh, don't use a, a voltage divider to regulate to try to regulate voltage. Yes, yes. Or a linear, or a linear amp to drive a three phase motor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that won't work either. But there, there is you know using the resistors to drop from you know their input supply down to whatever the Arduino or 
you know, circuit needs that if you spend any time on the the engineering forums on Reddit, that comes up pretty regularly every week. It seems like a lot of new guys will get hooked on power and for the reasons we talked about, uh, yeah, just resistors are not going to cut it. There's a few cases where that'll work, but unless you're just literally driving the input of an amplifier that's very high impedance, just just grab a three-terminal regulator or learn how to make one with you know a, a Zener diode and a transistor. Which is essentially a very crude linear regulator in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we move on to the uh, a, a question by Brian? And I, I'm looking at the clock. We should probably make this the uh, the final question. We've been we've been at this a while. So, uh, what have you got for us, Brian? Well, and this is one another one, just like a lot of other one, uh, a lot of other earlier questions that might have varying answers based on discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever use calculus in your professional professional life, Jeff? I, I've said numerous times on this on this podcast that I I spent a lot of years, more than two decades in engineering, and never once had to do a, a calculus problem either. Different, you know. So I can't say. I mean, did I have to sum things up like I was doing an integral? Yeah, I could use an Excel spreadsheet and do a rough approximation, and that was enough. Did I have to sometimes find the slope of a curve? Sure, but again, I could do something. Usually, you know, usually the the curves I had weren't these nice polynomials that had a very clean differentiation. So you just plug it into Excel, and and uh, you know, rise over run gives you an approximation of slope if if your if your uh, your steps are small enough. Uh, and in reality, for the kind of work I was doing, you know, if you were sizing a motor, there was, there was either a catalog that said, okay, if you've got this, you know, you need this sort of horsepower, this speed, um, here's, you know, here's how big the motor should be, or here's how to size it, or here's what the, the leads, you know, how big the leads need to be to the motor. Or there was a sales engineer that you'd go talk to and say, okay, here's, here's what we recommend. Um, and so, so at least for the kind of work I was doing, for the most part, my, you know, the companies I was working for didn't want me doing a whole lot of calculus. You know, they wanted something that was easy enough that if, if there was a problem, they could call the vendor to come in and replace it. Or if there was a problem and I left, somebody else could figure it out. They didn't want, they didn't want me complicating things any more than they needed to be complicated already. I imagine everyone else uses calculus on a daily basis. <laughs> Uh, not a daily basis, but it, it comes up every now and again. Um, you know, I'll occasionally have to re-derive a, a few formulas or, you know, solve well-known problems for a slightly different case than before. Um, so just, just brushing through the calculus to a, a first order or, you know, whatever, um, is enough. As I progress more and if I decide I want to get more into designing new types of modulators, then, yeah, I'll, I'll be doing a little bit more calculus, probably have to learn some state-space stuff. And uh, it can get can get pretty mathematical as you get more into that, you know, new pushing the boundary on new designs. But for 90% of my app's work, then just a, a working knowledge of calculus is enough. Yeah. Um, for me, in reality, calculus is usually – well, I may do what could be a calculus problem – Usually the information isn't in a form that a traditional calculus solution is the most efficient. It's discrete measurements that don't 
necessarily or probably don't even close to follow any equation, but you're still doing a calculus type, um, you know, getting an integral or getting a derivative, but it, it's on discrete data points. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that it makes sense to even try to take and create a trend line and, and do calculus on. Um, in reality, yeah, no calculus. Um, probably beyond junior structures courses, uh, except maybe a occasional, extremely theoretical grad school class. And what about you, Brian? I would say that uh, as long as we can rope differential equations into cal- into calculus, which they they pretty much yeah, are, I would yeah. say, for most, you know, yeah, why not? Close enough. Yeah, it. it I would say almost on a daily basis, but I cheat. So, <laughs> and I, how do you, how do you cheat? Well, I am firmly of the opinion that they should put a disclaimer in the first few years of. Uh, engineering mathematics that any problem we're solving in industry or any sufficiently complex we're solving in industry is almost impossible to find an analytical solution for. Yeah, there's no closed form solution for. Yeah. And so you learn how the math works so that you can go out in industry and use all of the uh, differential equation solvers in SPICE. Mm Mm-hmm. Etc. So, I mean, right. I do use it on a daily basis, but, you know, I am not actively participating in the solving of differential equations. Right. Yeah. Now, you if know. you're in, uh, you know, some sort of modeling group, then you could, you know, very well be using calculus on a daily basis. Um, I've, I've done a little bit of work with some guys, you know, correlating, uh, models to the bench back in school doing research and you know if you're trying to come up with a good model trying to make it simulate and be accurate and not hog all the computer resources then yeah you're you're doing quite a bit of math to make sure what you're putting in there is correct in the most efficient form and it can get pretty hairy pretty quickly <laughs> yeah that's true and also but uh, keep in mind i mean that that's a little more the- niche though than but the asterisk with that is go back to our discussion about MATLAB. Yeah. Um, more and more, those types of system problems are looking more and more like spice problems. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, the toolkits have abstracted the lower level nature of the problem so that you can, or the lower level math part of the problem so you can focus on the higher level concepts. Yeah. Unfortunately, my research was trying to come up with those low-level models. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and there's a big, there's a lot of work to be done in that. But you know, once you have the low-level models, it's all about optimization of certain parameters. Yeah. Well, and when you think about it, how many engineers are creating those low-level models versus using them? Yeah, that's a good point too. I like this uh, this next one here you have, Jeff. It's it's somewhat of a new topic. It's not just old ground for us. I say we cover that one real quick. All right. Uh, oh, is there any reason you, you want me to introduce that one? Well, I mean, you found that question. <laughs> I did. So, so somebody on Reddit wrote in and said they were having difficulty with middle-aged coworkers. Some guy um, in his late 20s. <laughs> yeah. So, um, he apparently was, was 
finding it difficult to find something to talk with these people about. And all they wanted to do is talk about their families or what they did around the yard on the weekend. Uh, and apparently that was not a topic of interest to them. And I think that we kind of hit it on earlier. Uh, it depends a lot what company you're with, you know, a bigger company that has more people around, there are more chances to have social interactions. You're more likely to find someone that you sort of hit it off with. And the reality is that, uh, being a middle-aged person is different. You ought in the sense that you've, you've, many cases decide to settle down, you know, the, the average age of at which people get married is moving up. But, you know, I think the average age is like 29 or 30, 28, 27, mm -hmm. uh, somewhere in there. Uh, a few years after that, people tend to have kids. They tend to move into houses. You do that. You take, you have a kid, you have a house, you have a job. There's not a lot of time for a lot of other things. You're, you're unlikely to go out to the, uh, uh, to the uh, the bars, you're unlikely, less likely to go out to you know to the music venue and hear some band that you really like, because your time is spent taking care of the house, taking care of the kid, uh, taking care of the job, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I don't I don't think it is. Uh, I think it's just the nature of of getting older and, and having different responsibilities, and so, uh, I I don't have any good advice for this. Uh, this uh, Reddit questioner, other than uh, just try to be uh, try to be understanding that that uh, you know your interests change with life. The person you are at at age twenty is not who you are at thirty or at forty or at fifty. Uh, it would be life would be very boring if you stayed static. And so we we constantly change. We learn things. We have new experiences. We change our opinions, and uh, uh, you just try to be understanding of that. And and if the people at work. Uh, aren't giving you the the social interaction you need you know go find it somewhere else go you know go join a club or or uh, join an organization or you know habitat for humanity or you know find something where you're meeting some new people and uh, have some new interactions yeah i'd also like you know i i didn't see this thread when it was originally posted but i i went through the same thing when i started my uh my job and I, I still am the, the young guy at work. Um, we were just discussing today, actually, it was, uh, you know, 15 years as, as Intercell and we were Intercell back, you know, at the start of the transistor revolution and IC revolution, but then they were bought and sold so many times. They didn't have that name for a while. So everybody was reminiscing about, you know, 15 years ago, what were you doing this? What were you doing there? And, and I was like, I was starting sixth grade 15 years ago. <laughs> and I was told promptly to shut up. No one wanted to hear about that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, th those are some of the old, but, you know, in general, I'm, I'm at least five, six years younger, I think. I don't know everybody's age exactly, but I'm, I'm, I'm a good five or six years younger than most people. And, you know, when you're coming in, the new grad, fresh out of college, um, you know, you're, you're, you're probably going to be a little cocky. I mean, you, you got through engineering school and that's a big, a big accomplishment. You should feel good about that. You should have some confidence, but you know, don't, you know, if you're trying to improve your relationship with your coworkers, don't walk in, you know, strutting your stuff like you're some kind of hot shot because anybody who's been there more than three, four, five, ten, twenty Weeks. years knows way more than you do. And, you know, you, you got to kind of prove yourself before they, they take you seriously, you know, as you do the tasks you're given, do them well. Um, you know, you'll start to get more respect in their eyes. Um, in terms of just socializing, I mean, you can 
you know, unless you're really working at a place with a bunch of squares or it's some kind of dictatorship, you know, you, you can, you can find some activity in common, you know, whether it's organizing a happy hour once a, a month or so with everybody at work and, you know, going out and swapping stories or shooting pool or having a beer or whatever, um, getting involved in the office, you know, it's organized, you know, some kind of lunch or a, a picnic or whatever, you know, not even, not even after work, but just see if you can have something to break up the monotony of coming in and going to meetings and running your Sims. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I got involved every now and again when we do our like quarterly earnings meeting or it's, you know, when we did a cookout for the Olympics or whatever, every now and then they'll say, Oh, we need someone to go get beer. And, you know, I've, I've volunteered. I'm now the beer guy at the office and they, <laughs> the guy in charge just comes to me and says, uh, you know, how busy are you today? And then I'm like, oh, you know, depends on what you're asking me to do. And he's like, well, you know, can you fit a beer run in? And I grab my keys and start running out the door. <laughs> I'm never that busy. Um, so, you know, just, just doing stuff like that, you know, if you can get a, a fantasy sports league going, you know, it, it, there, there's things you can do to make it not, uh, you know, not terrible. I mean, you don't have to be best friends with the people you work with, but you don't just have to look at them as like the old, you know, married, boring people. Um, and you know, you, although they, they may be old, boring, married people. Yeah. But you know, a lot of times they aren't, <laughs> I mean, they were young once they've done, you know, some fun stuff back in their time, probably still are doing some fun stuff. They have all the money saved up from being an engineer. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and sometimes talking, talking and shooting the shit about, you know, what you did over the weekend could be fun. You know, you maybe not want to hear about how little, Jeffrey wet the bed again and they haven't gotten any sleep, but maybe they want to hear about your weekends. So once in a while, when they get a chance to go out, you know, they know the, you know, the new good restaurants and stuff, all the, you know, the places to avoid and what's new and what's fun. And, you know, it's, it's what you make of it. Um, I'll add that. I think that you need to keep in mind that they're coming from a different place than you are. Um, and actually reading that that question specific question i suspect that his middle-aged coworkers are working very hard to try to engage him and and get him involved and and um you know you mentioned giving him a hard time i think that they're trying to to break the ice and just having a hard time yeah and, and um they're coming from a very different place and uh their generation is a fair bit different than um the upcoming sub 30 year olds in the way they approach things. I mean, I've even noticed just in my office, when I talk to someone over 35, what we talk about in the in the lunchroom is quite a bit different than when I run across the other two people that are under 30 mm -hmm. and the two people under 30 always want to talk work. <laughs> <laughs> They're excited to be doing this. It's new and the older um, people want to talk about their kids and their house and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And the, the top comment of this post is, is pretty good as well. Um, you know, just kind of what I said, you know, a little bit, you know, asking them about their lives and asking interested, you know. And then the repetitive jokes, you know. I mean, it's just work, you know. You can't throw out your dirtiest joke, you know. Because HR is around and, you know, you have to be professional, especially if you're in an environment where customers are walking through. Um, 
but it also could just be a, a warm-up, like you said, Jeff, trying to break the ice. I mean, yeah, maybe maybe they're they're throwing out the old ones that everybody knows, but once you engage them a little bit, and I know you're someone you can joke with, maybe it'll get better and, you know, they'll they'll slip you something off the corner of their mouth during a meeting, and <laughs> next thing you know, you're goofing around with them and having fun. Right, and I just thought I'd add that there comes an age where You've heard most of the jokes, you know, some form of the joke, and you realize you've heard most of the jokes and you can't remember who you've told which one to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so you tend to go back to telling the same joke, whichever one kind of, you know, you remember struck you. You remember giving the laugh. <laughs> yeah. You, you sort of that, – that's your go-to joke and you use it over and over. And, and since you've forgotten exactly when you heard it and how many times you've heard it, you also forget who you tell it to. And so – uh, then, you know, the older workers may be trying to be nice and, and telling the same joke, not, you know, not to uh, demean or to embarrass or to be at all cruel to the younger coworker, but they just can't remember. Oh, yeah. And, and another thing to keep in mind, too, is, you know, it's, it's a bit of networking. I mean, if if you do, you know, you come in, you bury your head in your work and you go home at the end of the day, um you know, yeah, you may do good work, but it's, you know, still going to have sort of intangible effects on your career. You know, if you go to switch jobs and you're looking for references, I mean, are they going to recommend you over somebody that does a little bit, you know, maybe worse work in terms of technical detail, but is also way more fun to be around and engages people and, you know, tries to show they have some interest in the place they work, you know, it, these people could technically make or break your career depending on what kind of connections they have. And, you know, I'm not saying you should kiss ass, but, <laughs> but yes. I think you are. Oh, no, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly give right back when someone gets sarcastic with me. That's just in my nature and stuff. But, right. you know, if you prove you're not held to work with, you know, that comes back and benefits you in, you know, ways you probably don't know down the line. Yeah. I think people tend to remember how they feel when you're around them more than what your technical skills are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, unless you really do one thing or two things that nobody else can do that you're just so irreplaceable, you know, people will generally want to work with, you know, the more exciting people to be around, the nicer people. Mm -hmm. So I'll say one non-technical thing related to this topic, which is, uh, to somebody who's younger, out of, just out of college and feeling those kinds of things, um, you know, you are young and hip so blissfully sh for such a blissfully short period of time. <laughs> and I mean, I'm 33, which is hardly graybeard by any stretch of the imagination. And it is, I was trying to explain to some recent transplants of the city, you know, all the hip places to go. And realizing very quickly that A, they'd either closed or B, no, actually, <laughs> I would not recommend anyone go there. Yeah, or it's, it's <laughs> been know. so long since you've been there, you're not sure if your recommendation holds up anymore. Yeah. Oh, no, it's – I actually couldn't think I, – I, that would have been awesome if it would have just been a dubious suggestion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's – you know, and it's not a new feeling, but it's – I think you age people age quicker than th they'll even understand. And all of a sudden you're going to be the ones taking part in those conversations. You're going to have that first kid and all of a sudden it's going to be, man, I really need to know that it's okay when my kid vomits three times in the night that it's okay. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it's, that'll be a big part of your, 
assuming you have kids or, you know, you own a house and you have to deal with those kinds of issues. (laughs) There's always something to talk about with a house. Something's always breaking. Absolutely. I mean, that would be a big part of relating with other people. The shared, if you look at shared experiences that are both traumatic and wonderful and dominate our lives, having kids, having houses and family and friends are pretty, pretty much it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and I'll even say if and electronics, <laughs> um, if the your older coworkers are trying to to joke around a little, that also means that they aren't necessarily viewing you as a kid. Yeah. Um, at least a lot of my coworkers, actually, almost all of my coworkers have kids my age or even older, and you know that's it's a very different situation to be going in, and I'm their peer professionally i mean not an experience and such but you know um yeah you you have the same same job title as some of them (laughs) and actually some of them i'm their supervisor Mm -hmm. but they have kids my age or older and so it's i i can see it being very difficult oh i'm sure to reconcile you know (laughs) it's like (laughs) yeah Yeah, ask me again in 20 years (laughs) (laughs) exactly so you know patience and if, if they are joking around a little bit, that's not something they do with a kid or their kid, their kid or their kid's friends in that manner. And that's, that means in my opinion, my mind that they're probably trying to reach out. Yeah. All right. Well, let's mark it down. Episode 450 of the engineering commons, 20 years from now, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to discuss this again. <laughs> well, I look forward to that, uh, that episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it should uh, be a good one. Not exactly right around the corner, but... Uh, <laughs> That's we'll, right. That's how you keep the listeners listening. They got something to look forward to. <laughs> That's right. Well, when, when they talk about teasing a show, I think they're meaning like the next episode or, you know, within within a few months. I don't think teasing an episode 20 years out is quite the way they mean to do it. Mm, that's that confidence I was talking about before. <laughs> that's wow. that, it's that slow build. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, well, we've been, we've been talking on for quite a while here. I think we should let the listeners go for now. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Class dismissed. <laughs> We're not even all the way to 25,000 yet. No, no. We Every Reddit engineering question ever. Uh, you know, before we do sign off, uh, we would just like to thank the, uh, you know, seven or eight of you that gave us the recommendation and the upvotes in the engineering podcast uh, thread. That was much appreciated. Yay. Thank you. Yeah. And those of you who haven't done so yet, uh, go do that. Yeah. Go upvote us for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Moral imperative. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, tomorrow when, you know, hey, guys, how great is the engineering commons? That's not us that put that up there. No, that's the listeners. <laughs> right. And and for those listeners that may have questions, if, if you liked what we did uh, in this episode, you can send us questions. And, and that way we won't have to turn to Reddit to get our, our uh, engineering uh Queries. We prefer homegrown, you know, from our listener base. But uh, we've got, <laughs> we right. got quite a few guests lined up now, don't we? We've got a couple, yeah. yeah. Next, next few episodes, we'll have some pretty cool guests on. And there's, there's some more in the works. We're floating around, too, behind the scenes. Trying to lock down. All right. Well, let us consider this episode of the Engineering Commons closed. And uh, we'll get together in a couple of weeks and do it one more time. All right. Sounds good. Does anyone have a gavel? Uh Somebody will grab uh, I've got two Allen wrenches from my Ikea desk I put together this week, so. Oh, okay. that, was, that was so anticlimactic. 
<laughs> Beer mug? There we go. Any listeners still on still <laughs> listening to this are probably pretty pissed now. <laughs> We're never gonna ever gonna get to anybody episode four fifty now. Alright, we'll talk to you guys later. See ya. Alright. Take care. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.